what I'm convinced of is that although there are all kinds of issues that I care about, the single most important thing I can do is to help in any way I can prepare the next generation of leadership to take their own crack at changing the world. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. What you heard there was Barack Obama speaking last week in Chicago and speaking publicly for the first time since he became a private citizen. The reemergence of Obama on the political scene provides an excellent occasion to talk to my guest today. Jonathan Chait is a writer for New York Magazine and the author of the new book, Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Created a Legacy That Will Prevail. Chait has been arguing for months that the Obama legacy will be much harder to erase than Republicans hope and Democrats fear, and his book is an attempt to put Obama's legacy into historical context. His writing for New York Magazine has established him as one of the most widely read and debated commentators on American politics, and he's written about issues as wide-ranging as tax policy and the culture of college campuses. Chait used to be a senior editor at the New Republic magazine before heading to New York, and I should disclose that he and I were colleagues at the New Republic for many years. John Chait, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Isaac. Uh, So I want to ask about your book and about uh, the former president. Um, The original title of your book, I think, was How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Transformed America. And you you changed the title, I think, because like you, like everyone else, was expecting that Hillary Clinton would win and then this earthquake happened um, and Donald Trump was elected. And I I was wondering, when, when Trump's election happened, how did that make you think differently about Obama's legacy or did it not? I don't think the election really changed very much. We had to go through the book and look what parts of it needed more, needed to be changed, needed to be altered or needed to be added to. And it turned out to be not all that much. But you, I, I had to change the title because you can't persuade someone that your argument is right within the book. You, or In other words, you can't persuade someone to buy the book with the argument within it. You need to use the title of the book to persuade them that even though they may think that the book's argument is wrong, it actually isn't. So that's why we changed the title because people leaped to the assumption after the election that Obama's legacy was going to be wiped away and we needed a title that made them say, no, this this book is going to make, make me think otherwise. So we had to billboard that because of the election. But it, it it really didn't alter that much. And I think if people actually think about what Obama did, and that's what I try to prod them to do, if you actually go through, you'll find that much less of his agenda is vulnerable to reversal than a lot of people have been assuming since the election. And, and I do think that that's become more clear in the first 100 days of Trump's presidency. Well, so, I mean, I guess I think the the sort of common take on the first hundred days of his presidency or one common take is that the reason much of Obama's agenda has not been wiped away is because Trump and his administration are completely incompetent and can't seem to do so. But it seems like what you're saying is that you think that Obama's legacy can survive regardless of Trump's competence because it actually something about that legacy is actually more firm than we had been led to believe. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I I think people don't even have a really good sense of what his legacy is. I had to go through all my notes and all my research to really refresh my memory of all the things that were accomplished because very few people can actually hold them together in their head at a single time, all the things that Obama did. And I don't want to bore your readers by listing them, but the first big- Listeners, John. Listeners. What, what, What word did I use? 
readers. Readers. Your readers. Right, right. No one, no one would read this you. This is a podcast. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I assume that they were all printing this out and, and transcribing, but that may have no, been naive. No, sorry. Um, yeah. So the first big chapter I have about his, his policy is about the, the recovery from the recession, how they had to rescue the banks. They did this incredibly controversial bank restructuring plan that was mocked by everyone and hated by everyone but worked. The auto bailout, which was mocked by everyone and hated by everyone but worked and the stimulus, which is the same um, and how they, they produced one of the most impressive recoveries from any – Economy, in fact, the most impressive recovery of any economy that that was hit by the financial crisis. And just by definition, you're not going to bring back the financial crisis, right? So no Republican presidency can undo that just by definition. That's to start off with. That's that's the first big policy chapter. And and on and on. I think if you actually get into the meat of the of the legacy, what I'm saying is most of it is is either by definition invulnerable or just would not be vulnerable to any president. Um, now, how much can be rolled back really depends on Trump's intentions and his, his success. And, and here I do think he's having somewhat less success than even I thought in the book he would have. Let me ask you about the, the, larger, the larger question though of, of Trump coming into office after Obama just to depart a little bit from policy, which is mm -hmm. that uh, my colleague Jamel Bowie, who I think both of us regard as one of the smartest people writing about politics. Absolutely. He, he reviewed your book and he, he compared you to Obama actually and he said that both of you missed the threat of Trump and he said – he, this is his quote, committed to a teleology of progress, albeit open to the reality of historical irony. This liberalism lacks a visceral sense of the tragic. And then he talked about himself. He said, perhaps if liberals like Chait or even myself were more attuned to that possibility of profound loss, then maybe we would have better anticipated the present moment and all the pain it promises. Do you think that that's a fair critique of either Obama or the way you look at politics? It seems like it's an argument for a mood rather than a, an argument for a conclusion or an analysis because the the analysis in the book does basically support Obama's view of historical progress. It says America, as Obama has said many times, is a better place now than it was 30 years ago. It was a better place 30 years ago than it was 30 years or 50 years or 100 years or, or 150 years before that. So over long intervals, the political system has moved us in, in the right direction, even though there are periods during that time when things are moving in the wrong direction. And I think what Jamel Bowie was arguing about in that piece was how we should feel about this, how we should feel during the moments when it's going the wrong way. But I don't see anything in that review that was really disputing the conclusion. Let me let me ask you um, about, about just the way Obama dealt with Wall Street because you you mentioned this earlier about the rescue. Um, there were there are some there are some people who have sort of criticized Obama from the left as not going hard enough. Um, you know, Tim Geithner opposed an amendment to cap the amount of capital big banks could have, and th things like that. And and I was just wondering, do, do you feel that that Obama? I mean, clearly Dodd, the Dodd Frank reforms. Some of them are going to be long lasting, but do you feel that Obama did as much as he could have there? And do you think if he didn't, it was it was political things sort of reining him in, or do you think that he surrounded himself with people who were more sympathetic to Wall Street than he should have? There's an there's an analysis about what needed to happen in the wake of the financial crisis that people on the left had that that a lot of liberal analysts didn't have, which was that it was important to um, break up the big banks. 
And I don't, I don't think the center left necessarily shared that agreement. So what this boils down to, I think, is an analysis of what, what actually needed to happen. Dodd-Frank reduced the size. It, it, it just objectively did. It, it reduced the size of the financial industry. Financial industry makes less money. Its profits are, are smaller as a share of GDP. It didn't lay waste to the financial system. Um, I would argue that that was not, neither necessary nor possible as a goal of financial reform. I think you also have to remember that in order to pass this law, they needed to get a handful of Republican votes. The only way to get them was to basically pressure them um, with the stick of, of, of fearing that they were going to be seen as too pro-Wall Street. But you were never going to get moderate Republicans to just you know, tear down the entire financial system and insult the earth so it would never grow again. So I don't really think that that's really a realistic counterfactual. Um, so I think what I try to do in the book is to is to realistically engage with what the law did and how it changed the financial system. And I think by the metrics that they were looking for in the legislation, it's really it's really worked. It's it's reduced the amount of risk in the system. It's increased the amount of leverage. It's put in place uh, safeguards that are going to prevent an, uh, another meltdown in the need for a bailout like we had before. If your goal was to just definancialize the, the economy in a totally comprehensive way, it didn't try to do that and, and, and no president was ever going to pass a law like that. Obama, I think, is one of the least populist politicians that we've we've had in many different ways. And I think probably prides himself on putting forth kind of a technocratic vision of how he governs, even though he he, you know, says he's a progressive and so on. And and I was wondering, you know, now that we're in this era of rising populism, do you worry that sort of technocracy as as a political idea that is being preached by politicians can't work without a candidate like Obama and that the Democratic Party or liberal parties around the world, um, I mean liberal in the American context, need to sort of find a more populist message even if you yourself uh, – I, I know you pretty well. I don't think of you as much of a populist. But, right. but I'm wondering what you think about that. So – we do need to define the term populist, which is used in a lot of different ways. I think people have come to understand in the Trump era, in the era of populism in Europe, that one of the key elements of populism is the conceit that politics is very, very simple, that the people or at least the part of the people you're talking about, which might just be one ethnic component of the people, are unified. What's what's good for them is obvious. Um, there aren't important – um, conflicts over policy um, or crafting that policy um, that are worthwhile or, or difficult and that it's simply a matter of putting the right people into power to easily put those changes into place. Um, I think the, the main flaw with populism is that it's simply wrong. It's an incorrect analysis of how politics works. So I think you have to begin with your question of how to face this problem with, well, we need politicians who are operating off of a correct analysis of, of how politics works. Otherwise, you're not going to succeed. And, and that's one of the reasons why Trump is failing is because his populism just did not map onto politics at all. Now, Succeed in governing or succeed in campaigning? You can succeed in campaigning, but maybe not more than once. Once you get into government, you're going to flail and then that's a, that's a recipe for, for serious failure or um, attacking democratic institutions in order to keep power. Um, I don't think that Obama is the only kind of politician who, who could who could win. I think that's a real misreading. I think that's seizing upon a you know 
a few contingent events. Look, Hillary Clinton, for all her many, many flaws um, and the many unfair things that happened to her on top of those flaws, still won the vote by three million and came within a whisker of winning the presidency. Bill Clinton um, won two elections by relatively comfortable margins. So no, I don't think that that Obama's political formula is going to die with Obama. Right. I mean, I think Bill Clinton. Well, let me let me let me ask you more before I go to Bill Clinton. Let me let me just ask you more about uh, one other thing about Obama, which is that it seemed to me like when you take Wall Street as an example, that Obama was very allergic to using any kind of populism. He never seemed to, in my mind at least, show the sort of anger and disgust that he did with certain things that were going on in the country the way he did with Trump. Um, I know this became like a conservative talking point. Why does he hate Trump more than he hates Assad or whatever stupid thing that was? But it did seem to me that with Trump, you really felt this real disdain that Obama had for understandable reasons. And it did seem to me about there were certain issues like with Wall Street, like after the financial crisis, that Obama could have chosen to show more of that, you know, contempt or anger about which may have been helpful politically to him. Do, do you think that's a fair critique or not so much? So that's a really good question. But I think that's a question where my book provides a lot of helpful context, which is that it, the book brings us back to the debates as they existed at the time. And I try to show what the political culture was and what the assumptions were at the time and, and what was concerning people and what was um, – what creating pressure on politicians to act or to not act. And, and, and the biggest factor by far was widespread fear among elites that Obama was a radical, was a socialist and was ending capitalism as we know it. Um, that pressure was um, – holding back the democratic agenda in all kinds of palpable ways. So I don't think that a more populist, more visceral attack on any segment of the business community would have been helpful. I think on the contrary, I think it would have done even more to freak out the kind of elites and, and the kind of freak out that was, that was standing in the way of this agenda. Right. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of the way the oh, I, I think that that's a fair response. I'm thinking of the way that the Obama and the Obama campaign kind of sold Romney as a plutocrat to people. Yeah. And just the way in which they did that, which I thought was very skilled. I mean, I, I know that 2009 was a different time than 2012, which was a different time than 2016. But that seemed very skilled. And I was surprised that there wasn't more of that um, about Wall Street and the financial crisis. I don't think you can point to a lot of good examples of presidents who run a good contrast political campaign during non-campaign events for for legislative reasons. Um, the public tends to focus on the president and the president's party and hold them responsible for all outcomes. Um, that's something I try to explain in the book and I think that's a really important factor for understanding how the politics of the Obama era went, how people wanted him to use these campaign type skills in situations when no one does use campaign type skills. You've written a lot about Republicans and the way they sell things like tax policy and so on and one point that you've made is that you know, they come up with these crazy ideas and then you kind of move the window so th those ideas become more acceptable. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I was wondering, I mean, do you think that that, that 
the ability of Republicans to do that on some issues, to make the unreasonable seem reasonable, mm -hmm. is a fair critique of Obama's negotiating strategy because he always seemed to enter into negotiations sounding so reasonable? Yeah, that's a that's a critique that came up from time to time. Um, it's hard to argue against a counterfactual like that. But I think you also have to understand that the constitution of the Democratic Party coalition is just totally different from the Republican coalition. So any assumption that it can operate in a mirror image way from the Republican coalition doesn't work. And it's different in all kinds of ways. It's um, ethnically heterogeneous instead of homogeneous like the Republican coalition. It's economically heterogeneous, right? It it includes not only business but also labor, environmentalist consumers, economic – organized economic interests that are in, in tension with each other. And it's philosophically heterogeneous, whereas the Republican Party is more or less controlled exclusively by the conservative movement. Um, the progressive movement such as, as it is doesn't have that same kind of hammerlock on the Democratic Party, which is more of a coalition of liberals and moderates and, and at the beginning of Obama's term, even some conservatives as well. How do those differences, which I agree with, how does that manifest itself in sort of giving the Republicans more ability to maneuver around these things, do you think? They both have advantages and disadvantages. Um, the Republican coalition is is very bad at self-correction, at limiting its own mistakes, at looking at places where it may be out of step with public opinion and 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 moving back into line with public opinion. Um, you you can see the way that they hurtled toward disaster under Bush. They were just unable to correct their own excesses. They were unable to govern in a way that was going to be satisfactory to the public and they just teed up a, a massive political backlash that eventually lost them all the control of, of government um, and failed to to really leave in place policies that advanced their goals in any kind of lasting way. Um, now, they've got power back, but I think you can see in a lot of ways they're hurtling towards disaster at an even faster rate. And I don't think they're actually going to leave in place policies that have legitimacy and have sustainability. Um, on the other hand, you, you do have certain advantages that you can, that you can you know, put pressure on your own coalition. You can look at the way Republicans right now are on the verge of passing a a healthcare bill through the House that has 17 percent support that never would have happened with the Democratic Party. The Obamacare was not popular, but it was more than twice as popular as as the repeal bill is. Um, so the amount of, of 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 partisan cohesion that the Republicans are able to to muster is is pretty impressive. But the but the ability to steer where that goes in an intelligent way is 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 really is really lacking. Just to just to turn to more current stuff, I, what did you make of the debate that's been occurring among a lot of people, some people on the left, about Obama um, giving speeches for four hundred thousand dollars? I think was the one that was talked about. What did what did what did you make of of that debate, and what do you think about him doing it? Speeches that I guess will be paid for by Wall yeah, Street. Yeah, I think he has a right to do it, but he shouldn't do it. He has plenty of money. He doesn't need that money. He's unnecessarily exposing himself and his ideas to criticism. Um, in order to make a little bit more and I think it's pretty short-sighted and, and, and it's selfish and I, I agree with the, the critics like Matthew Iglesias and Josh Barrow who, who say he shouldn't do that. Do you want him to weigh in more? I mean I know there's been this question of how often he will weigh in on political events and what he should weigh in on. Do you want him to and if you do, what do you think – what sort of things do you think he should be weighing in on? I want him to maximize his influence on the public debate. 
Um, I don't think the way to maximize it is to weigh in as frequently as people want him to um, because then it would be diluted. But on the other hand, you know, it's – I mean this is a simple neither too much nor too little, right? But if he never weighs in, then obviously he's not maximizing it if he's just saving it up for a speech that he'll never give. So, you know, it's it's just the boring neither too much nor too little. Use it judiciously and, and have the biggest punch. Did um, he's he's going to get involved? I think in in issues having to do with uh, redistricting and rebuilding the Democratic Party at the state and the grassroots level is is that something that you think he deserves blame for for the way in which the the party sort of uh, withered at various levels, or do you think that that was sort of out of his control while he was in office? I would say it was mostly out of his control. Um, the last analysis I saw of the effect down ballot of a president's party shows that. Presidents, parties who have – who maintain two terms of control, all we see down-ballot losses. It's just totally routine and where the Democratic Party fell under Obama's term is totally within the standard range of what happened to uh, the parties under Reagan, under Roosevelt, under Nixon, um, Bush, etc. Et so um, I think that's another case where just what always happens in politics is being is being blamed on personal failings of the president when it really, for the most part, should not be. On the other hand, I do think I do think the the part the part where I think he deserves either blame or maybe just the more correct term would be attribution would be the fact that Obama did help change the nature of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was already changing leading up to Obama, but I do think he him and who he represented helped helped change who identified as a Democrat. It, it, it made the party more reliant on younger, urban, non-white, and college-educated voters. And those voters are distributed in a way that are, di- that are underrepresented in the legislative arena, both in Congress and in state legislatures. So the Democratic Party began, really began suffering down ballot because it just it, – it was being punished by – um, by gerrymandering and by the overconcentration of its voters in in, in safe seats, so that really was a, a unique Obama phenomenon. On the other hand, um, a lot of that had to do with simply his identity. So, if you could, I suppose you could say, well, we would have liked you more if you were, you know, an old white veteran or farmer or something. Then you would have had a different kind of coalition. But um, I think you know you're kind of stretching the term of blame a little bit when you when you make that point. Um, a two-part question for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can answer either one of them or both, hopefully. The first is how worried are you about the future of the Democratic Party reclaiming power? Um, and do, do you think it's in shambles or do you think talk of that is way overstated and that they've actually done a pretty good job of opposing Trump? And the second question is, which maybe you can also add on to that, is you, know, you I think, are very clearly identified and clearly identify yourself as someone of the center left rather than of the – of the left or the far left. And right. I'm wondering how much you think the Democratic Party, if it is going to change, is going to change in a way that someone with your particular point of view is going to be less happy with. Those are two good questions because actually it's hard for me to answer one without answering the other. So I think you're totally right to, to link them together. Um, after Trump's election, I wrote a column, I think, the next day comparing him to Bush and basically saying this is going to be like Bush but worse. This is a party that learned nothing from its failures under Bush. In fact, all the pathologies that that led to the disaster it saw under Bush have, in, if, if anything, intensified under Trump. You have even more extreme and less competent people running the government. 
Um, so it's going to crash. However, under Bush, Democrats did respond to failure by at least somewhat moving to the center or at least becoming conscious of the need to win the center and thinking hard about the center and what you need to, need to do to get those voters back. And I think you've had a bit of a different response in the, in the Democratic Party this time. I think you have a lot of constituencies within the party who are much more focused on ideological purity. Um, they're focusing on different kinds of issues, some of them on economics, some of them on social issues. But I think the Sanders campaign contributed to this to some degree, but a lot of them really have the idea that their path to power is to move further left. And to the extent that they succeed, and I don't know if they will, they might make it harder for the Democratic Party to, to, to bounce back and, and um, exploit the failures of the, of the governing party. Has Sanders' popularity surprised you? Yeah. Sanders' popularity surprised me some. Um, during the primary, I wrote what I still think is true, that I think Sanders was benefiting a lot from discontent with Clinton and a longstanding tradition of good government in the Democratic Party um, where previous candidates like Paul Songus and Jerry Brown and Gary Hart and on and on and on and on and on um, won big followings in the Democratic Party by focusing on the purity of their politics, the, the style of politics rather than the substance and, and, or, and portraying their opponents as basically corrupt, as part of the machine, as uninspiring, as in politics for the wrong reasons, as compromised, um, as opposed to um, being clean, virtuous, and in politics for the right reasons. I think that was the biggest cause of Sanders' support. And then his his substantive left-wing views were uh, were secondary to that. They they did draw in people on that basis, but I think not as much as the first factor I just identified. However, you did activate this pretty powerful left-wing movement. And from its perspective, that's not what happened at all. From, from the perspective of that movement, um, Sanders revealed that basically many, if not most Democrats are left-wing, if not actually socialist, um, that they're the true majority of the party, that the nomination was stolen from them, and the party is basically poised to fall into their lap. And so it follows from that that all they have to do is is move left and they'll get a majority of the party and then a majority of the country. Um, I think that's pretty badly mistaken, and I'd rather not have the next election be the, the test of that theory. You've been covering or writing about politics for a long time. The fact that Trump was elected, the fact that Trump was possible to be elected, even against a historically weak opponent, et cetera. Have you just, I mean, when you just sit back and think about it, do you think about American politics differently than you did in some fundamental way or the American voter or just the country we live in? I don't. Um, I've been really warning about the direction of the Republican Party for a long time. That's maybe the central theme of my entire body of work since I've started writing in the mid-90s that the takeover of the Republican Party by the conservative movement and it's, it's, and it's remaking into a, into a disciplined, um, homogeneous, um, ideological party uh, was sending it hurtling you know, off the charts and basically we had no map in our recent history. We had to go back to the 19th century to find a party that – that looked like this kind of party that that was so dangerous, that was so ideological. Um, so in a way, 
Trump um, is a continuation of this of this trend. And now he accelerates it. He he goes, you know, even farther than a lot of a lot of us even imagined possible. But 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 basically, if if you pull back and look at the history of conservatism in the 20th century, um, you had this movement of radicals that was one sect within the Republican Party and not the largest sect. It was a minority fringe sect within the Republican Party. But it but it had all these um, outlandish characters. You had Charles Coughlin and then you had Joe McCarthy um, and you um, – you know, you had other various right-wing insurgents, Goldwater, of, of course. Um, then eventually they took over the party, but you never really had um, – Goldwater, of course, is not really in the same category exactly as some of those others. But you haven't had one of these demagogues actually in charge of the party before. You had conventional politicians operating within a conservative movement-led party. But um, – there are elements of this politics before. The, the McCarthy era has a lot of similarities to Trump. The main difference is that the Republican Party wasn't taken over by McCarthy in the 1950s um, and, and it is taken over by a, a you know kind of similar character now. Right. I mean, I guess – I mean, that's definitely true about what you've been writing. I guess for me, the surprise has been that it's a, a Donald Trump type figure rather than Maybe a Ted Cruz or a more extreme version, even of Ted Cruz type figure, that that he's so disconnected from ideology, and I mean, has no idea what ideology is in any sense. That to me is what's surprising. Yeah, um, a lot of his personal characteristics are are surprising, unusual, probably not likely to be repeated. Um, but I think it's the party apparatus that has explained the fact that the Republicans have unified behind Trump and decided to stand shoulder to shoulder with him in order to get their agenda passed and even overlook his corruption and improbable lawbreaking. Um, a Republican Party of 30 years ago would never have nominated Trump and if a Trump somehow did manage to get its nomination, he would have split the party. Um, you would have look. John Anderson ran in 1980 because Ronald Reagan was too extreme for liberal Republicans to tolerate. Um, you would have had that in a much bigger, bigger way um, 30 years ago, or even maybe 20 years ago. Um, but but this party is is extreme enough that that it, that that it's not going to split. Last question for you. Has anything surprised you about the Trump administration 100 days in? I, I think the kind of conventional take is that they've been even more incompetent than people were expecting. And they've been the, – any anything that they would sort of do to try to in, institute um, more authoritarian type of governing is is at least on hold because they don't know what they're doing. But um, I mean I'm is that your take or or how do you how do you see it? Yeah, I, I don't have a surprising take. I, I think they've been – less competent than I expected, less disciplined than I expected. I thought they would do a better job of staffing. I thought they'd do a better job of, of legislating. Um, but um, hmm. yeah, I guess I, I wish I had some other big, big, big surprise, but that's, that, that's it. Well, what a disappointing way to end this podcast, John. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty let down. However, uh, you will not be let down if you go by John's book, which is called Audacity. How Barack Obama defied his critics and created a legacy that will prevail. 
John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Isaac. I I enjoyed this a lot. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from AC Valdez and Jim Richards. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. <laughs>